Welcome to another episode of Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and crime. I'm Trish, your bartender for today. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender for today. So grab a cocktail and buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot! Beep beep! Trish, your bartender for today, and today I'm doing a Italian margarita. You can find this recipe on Instagram. We'll have like a little recipe card there. We also have a reels. We also post a TikTok of us making the drink on there. So we like our margaritas a little strong. So you can definitely doctor this up. However. It's going to be your level of how you want this. So what I did was two ounces of our tequila, an ounce of amaretto, which is what makes it an Italian margarita. And then I did four ounces of our citrus mix. You pour it all over ice, you shake it, and then you pour it into your glass. We rimmed it with a Nice festive little glittery, glittery, <laughs> I can't glittery even. baking sugar. Yes, I was like, <laughs> that is apparently a word I cannot say. <laughs> it's a sugar rim. We enjoy this margarita, if you can't yes. tell. <laughs> but we hope you enjoy it. Let us know if you do. Um, also, be sure to just check us out on um, these episodes. We post every Tuesday, Friday, and yeah, we hope you enjoy and like the episode. Happy New Year's Eve, guys. <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. Uh, I decided for the New Year's Eve episode to do something a little different, especially because the past few episodes, especially my past couple of episodes, have been pretty dark and heavy. So today I wanted to talk <laughs> welcome about... Welcome to true crime. <laughs> welcome to true crime. But... We're also about fun here. So today I wanted to talk about Prohibition, more specifically Prohibition in Mobile, Alabama. But if you're anything like me, you're horrible with history, dates, names, specifics. You're good with general ideas. Regardless, (laughs) we're going to go over like Prohibition as the United States of America as a whole, and then I'll dive into Alabama and Mobile's history. So, Prohibition began when the 18th Amendment was added to the Constitution, and that banned the manufacturing, the transportation, and the sale of intoxicating liquors. I was going to say, everybody always thinks it's like the drinking. It wasn't wasn't the drinking. It wasn't even the owning of it. It was just everything that led up to you being able it. to go to a bar or store and just purchase it. Yes. So if you were caught with it, then it was obvious that you bought it. And that's why it's presumed that it was illegal to consume it. But yes. in the law itself, it wasn't illegal to consume alcohol. It was just illegal every stage up until that point. Yes. Why? 
why did we do prohibition? Why ruin a good thing with alcohol and sales and taxes and whatnot? Long story short that we're not going to get into today, but basically it came down to religion. Um, at the beginning of the 1900s, the end of the 1800s, there were a lot of crusades um, where we just wanted to abolish things in general instead of dealing with like specific problems. Get rid of the heathens. Right. Prohibition officially went into effect on January 17th, 1920. Uh which made everything but consuming alcohol illegal. But like we said, clearly, if you're consuming it, you've purchased it, somebody transported it to you, and that's what made it all illegal. Yes. By the time this was an actual amendment, 33 states had already implemented their own prohibitions, and Alabama was one of the first to enact a bill of the sorts. Good old Bible Belt right there. Good old Bible Belt. But... Actually, what I didn't remember or know is that Prohibition actually technically began three years before the 18th Amendment passed, and it was because President Woodrow Wilson declared a temporary prohibition to save grains for food instead of alcohol, and this was happening I mean, around World sure. War I. You know, they did need food, and so that was a good measure, but it was a war declaration not an amendment at this point yeah and around this time is whenever we started terming things like bootlegging which would be illegal manufacturing and selling um speakeasies became a big thing which were stores or nightclubs secretly selling alcohol and of course gang violence came to an all-time high at this point <laughs> <laughs> al capone i was saying oh god al to skip to the end real quick, and then I'll circle back and talk about Alabama. Uh, during the Prohibition, by 1932, we were in the Great Depression, and we needed to create jobs and income. We needed to rebuild our economy, and the best and fastest way to do that was to bring back jobs with the liquor industry. It would create jobs by manufacturing the alcohol, transporting it, and selling it. So that makes sense. In 1933, Congress ad adapted the 21st Amendment that would repeal the 18th Amendment, and both of these amendments took about a year to pass, so while we're talking about 1933, it wasn't until about 1934 that the national legislat legislation passed. A few states did continue the ban of alcohol for sev several years after, but by 1966, the last state finally ended their prohibition in that state was good old Alabama, uh, good old Mississippi. I'll say Mississippi was the last one. It was Mississippi. And I grew up in Mississippi. We still have dry counties and wet counties. We have some places that you can't buy liquor on Sundays. You can't buy it after certain times and whatnot. So like, I remember having to drive over the reservoir to go get alcohol on certain days. And then I grew up in Ohio where I just feel like, you know, you're, you're just never running into dry counties. <laughs> like, alcohol, sure. Sunday, it don't matter. <laughs> like, not in the South. I was really happy to move to Mobile because it was a wet county seven days of the week. You could buy alcohol whenever. Even uh, I moved here from Lowndes County and Octavaha County in Mississippi, and both have dry periods of time. So, well, I remember when I first moved here, 
even serving, like we weren't allowed to serve alcohol until noon on Sunday. Yes. And then it suddenly became that we could no matter what time. So yeah, that changed. That was a big thing. That changed shortly around the time that I moved here. So I kind of remember that, but there are, there's definitely like parts of prohibition that still exist in this country. So don't get me wrong. It's still here. There's still things. Yes. Um, but to pre-prohibition times in Alabama, because we did already say that we were one of the first states to have it, um, the first relevant attempt occurred in 1909, and it failed miserably, miserably, miserably. It was overturned within two years, and they moved to a system to where each county would be able to decide whether they were a wet or a dry county. In 1915, Alabama legislator approved yet another bill that would be known as the Bone Dry Bill. And at this point, 59 of the 67 counties in Alabama had decided that they would be dry. They would not allow for the manufacturing, selling, or traveling of alcohol. The Bone Dry Bill was submitted on the last day of the governor's term. He ignored it. And whenever the next governor came into term, he vetoed it. And then the state legislator vetoed his veto and put the bone dry bill into effect anyways. Look, it was the one time an Ohio, not Ohio, an Alabama governor was saying, let's keep our funds in Alabama. Even though most of the state was against it, yes. But he also knew that there were parts of the the state that did really well with alcohol sales. Neither the Alabama bill nor the 18th Amendment would keep certain Alabama residents from partaking in the fun of alcohol, though. Specifically, Mobilians. (laughs) We'd be a lead in the pack. (laughs) It would be us. Mobile was really an entire different world from Alabama. I think that it's important to, once again, kind of note the geography of Mobile. We are a port city here. We are one of the main port cities along the Gulf Coast. So what that really kind of means is that we have boats coming in from all over the world at all times. And for Mobile government and residents and business owners, they kind of knew that liquor is what was going to get the sailors off the ship and spend money in our town. Also, let's let's go with the up for interpretation Mobile claims to be the birthplace for Mardi Gras. Yes, I was going to get so, to that in a, in a little bit. So, But let's go ahead and touch on that now. Um, Mobile claims to be the home of Mardi Gras. And if you know anything about New Orleans, you probably know that they claim to be the home of Mardi Gras as well. Mobile, it's a big back and forth. It's a big back and forth. Mobile also claims to be the twin city in New Orleans. And Trish and I love New Orleans. We love Mobile, but nothing can really hold a candle <laughs> to New Orleans. Like, yes. even during like this shutdown that like New Orleans is still semi suffering from, like, you can still go and have a great time. You can say that you're sisters, but you're not twin sisters. And before my mobile residents come for me. Also, remember that neither of us are from here. We just live here. <laughs> so we don't have like... We have a good time downtown, but we have a better time in, in New Orleans, okay? Yes, yes. And Mobile is technically like the home of Mardi Gras, but New Orleans is definitely where it took off. New Orleans is like the heart and soul of it. But 
Mobile also has the parades and the Mardi Gras parties. It's just not as world-renowned as New Orleans is for Mardi Gras. So we will get into that a little bit later. Um, And, you know, like the, the politicians and the government officials and all, like, they knew what what it was to be honest they knew yeah. that their industry and what their town thrived off of was <laughs> alcohol. alcohol and at one point there was even a red light district here hey there was a, <laughs> yeah there was a prostitution district here i didn't know that until i started researching this but once again the government i'm literally officials, thinking about downtown going huh where would it be <laughs> But the government officials knew what the sailors getting off their ships that had been on these ships for months or weeks or however long, they knew what they wanted to get off the boat for. And they would cover up whatever it took to get them off the boat, essentially. Um, So back to my current bullet point, take it back a little bit. In every election between 1906 and 1918, Mobile would vote against the prohibitionist candidate, a.k.a. the Democrat candidate at that point, because they were the more restrictive party. Of course they did. And the Republicans were the more lenient yeah. ones. So f- f- that used to be what the, th- what the thing was. But Mobilians would vote against the prohibitionist candidate with a two-to-one mar- margin. And in 1909, when the state voted for pro- prohibition for the first time, 80% of Mobilians, and keep in mind at this time, voters were white males, Yes, they voted against this bill. In 1915 alone, almost 400 illegal stills were seized. And in 1920, when the 18th Amendment was passed, Alabama was the leading state in the number of illegal moonshines found. Not oh. Tennessee. I was a little shocked. Also, a little side note here, I didn't really know where to put this other than here as a side note, is that the KKK was very intertwined with the Prohibitionist. Oh, no. Which is kind of shocking, being from the South, and every redneck that I know is an alcoholic, but (laughs) also, my phone just froze. Oh, no. You're talking about not having alcohol. Nope. Nope. My phone said we're talking about the KKK. I'm not here for this. (laughs) I am not here for this. Anyways, so the KKK was very intertwined with the prohibitionists, and which not it is shocking because, like I said, most rednecks that I know are the people that you find in the woods drinking. Natty Lights and Budweiser's on the weekends. Yes. But also, it's not that surprising in the way that it's another great reason to hate the KKK. That they were coming after our alcohol. You were trying to take away my margaritas. Right. We are not here for that. We don't need any more reason other than their disgusting bigotry and racism. But here is another reason. And here we go. Moving on from this. The KKK members would actually conduct their own riots of bars and restaurants. Of course they did. Like, think civilian arrest sort of situations. Yes. Now, moving on to Prohibition in Mobile. Mobile was definitely one of the biggest hotspots for liquor during these times, and most Mobilians, including those in power, hated Prohibition. The mayor even owned his own brewery. Good on you. 
Law enforcement would make small arrests here and there in the name of prohibition, but for the most part, the offenders would pay small fines or short jail sentences. It was never anything, like, federally prosecuted because... Yeah. The big the big dogs were the people in power. If you're going to prosecute that, then uh, people are going to start looking at you. Right. And so, to go back to the KKK, which I hate to do, but... You might be thinking if the KKK was performing their own raids and whatnot, why were they not doing that in Mobile? But one thing that I love about this city is the KKK actually had a very small presence here because, I mean, it was it was full of Catholics for the most part. And I came to find out in my research that like the KKK was mostly mostly Methodist and Protestants. So they were looking down on Catholics but like the city was full of Catholics. They were full of people who were for prohib for that were not for prohibition. And so the KKK really didn't have an entrance, an entry into yeah. the city. They didn't have any officials that were on their side. They didn't have any law officials that were on their side. They just didn't they were the lone man. Whereas in the rest of the state of Alabama, they were the over powering yeah. presence. I mean find me a Catholic that doesn't like a good drink every now and then. <laughs> I mean, amen. <laughs> My family is historically Catholic. <laughs> Catholic. Mobile, like I said, is a port city, so it has a strong history with alcohol. You have to think of all the boats that come in and out, um, the sailors, but also the rum runners, the, yes. the people from the Caribbean that are bringing in alcohol. And this is also where I was tying in the Mardi Gras, where Mardi Gras is literally a tradition about drinking. Yes. So you can't really have Mardi Gras without drinking. And so all of those reasons kind of add up as to why the people in power were helping cover up the alcohol in our city. Yes. In the beginning of Al in the beginning of Alabama's prohibition, you could still find mobilians in front of bars openly drinking. Like they didn't have to go underground like you had to do for a lot of speakeasies. Yes. Prominent men of society would be meet at gentlemen's clubs and country clubs where alcohol was served daily. It wasn't until 1921 when two prohibition agents out of Montgomery, Alabama, made their way into Mobile to raid two of the wealthiest men's home in search of quote-unquote homebrew. Oh. Which to me either means beer or moonshine. Yeah. I mean, that was the go-to back then was you're either making bathtub gin, a.k.a. moonshine, or you're brewing beer because those are two of the easiest things right. to make on your own. So this, quiet, this caused quite the stir in local politics, not even just like local Mobile, but like local Alabama politics to the point to where the governor who was an avid pro prohibitionist at the time. I'm having a really hard time with that word tonight. <laughs> Worst time to pick this case. But the governor, who was an avid prohibitionist, condemned the raids and even fired the two men who conducted them in Mobile. Okay. Right? So from this point on, we're going to use some pretty big political names. So I'm going to throw them out there. I'm personally really bad, like I said, with names, times, history, that sort of stuff. But yes. I just kind of want to do like a cheat sheet right here because I needed it. 
Um, one of the main guys that we're going to talk about is Hugo L. Black. He is a future U.S. Senator and a future Supreme Court Justice at this point. He's oh. a known prohibitionist from Birmingham, and he's also a known Klan member. So thumbs up. Great guy. <laughs> We also have Frank W. Boykin. He is a future congressman. Um, Oscar W. Underwood. He is a U.S. senator. He's a good guy. Okay. Most important, Aubrey W. Boyles, the U.S. district attorney who led the investigation and called for the indictments. He was born in Crichton, Mobile County. He played football for Alabama in 1900, 1901. <laughs> 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 he also received his law degree from Alabama in 1904. And then he went on to practice real estate law before he joined the Prohibition Crusades. So he went from real estate to prosecuting quote unquote criminals. So after securing his U.S. District Attorney spot, Boyles immediately went for the liquor dealers in Mobile County. At first, it was the small fish in the pond, but after arresting this small, this woman, she was like, I don't understand why you're coming for me whenever there are more big fish in the pond. So that's whenever he realized that she was selling for, like, bigger people, a.k.a. Right. the government people. He also learned that some of these bigger guys in politics that were in charge they were playing they were paying off the local law enforcement for protection one of these one of these men even had the balls to attempt to bribe boils himself <laughs> to lay off of the liquor ring but it didn't work boils also knew that he was a lone man in mobile county fighting for prohibition city and county law enforcement judges prosecutors municipal officials state legislators members of the bar had been protecting these local traditions for a long time, and they had no plans of stopping. You sound like man that's trying to either compensate for something, or you're just trying to work your way up this ladder. I really feel like he was trying to work his way up the ladder. Like, prohibition was a new thing. I really feel like they thought it was going to be a permanent thing, and it wasn't. Clearly don't know your audience. <laughs> Did not know his audience at all. At this point, Boyles called in for extra help from Washington, D.C. because he knew that the local government was pretty corrupt according to <laughs> federal according to the federal standards. The local government was full of me and Sloan, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying that I would have I would have backed up the local government for sure. I would have been on the street drinking my tequila out in the open. I do have a dream of being a flapper, but anyways. So he calls in help from Washington, D.C. and Mabel Wilbrandt, who was the head of Justice Department's Prohibition Enforcement Division, sent in several veteran agents to make the bus. They carried out their investigation without involving local law enforcement, of course. They even kind of lied to them. They were like, no, we're here for this. But really, <laughs> they were like there to investigate the local law enforcement. Oh, God. Boyles would go so far as meeting with liquor wholesalers and act as if he was open to bribery, which would end up biting him in the ass whenever they came to prosecute <laughs> these cases. He employed a former police officer, Harry French, who was under indictment for murder. Great guy, right? Like, we really <laughs> want to trust no. him. French would solicit bribes from booze sellers and report it to Boyles. French would get to keep the bribes as payment, which would later bite Boyles in the ass, too, when they go to court about this case. Oh, God. But basically, Boyles, Boyles was like, 
I mean, he's going to keep the money anyway, so <laughs> might as well do this. On November 13, 1923, people crowded on St. Francis Street around Mobile's Custom House, which was a federal building, and they were there to witness the arrival of trucks loaded down with illegal liquor seized by the feds. Trish? <laughs> oh! <laughs> I need you to grab your drink because you're about to get really oh, upset. No. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Trucks filled with crates of scotch, bourbon, rum, and Benedictine, which I had to look up. It's a brandy based liquor. Okay. They spent hours and hours unloading these trucks. And keep in mind that all of this was evidence and had to be destroyed. Oh, God. This is where you have to, this is get ready. <laughs> 1,204,480 bottles of beer were destroyed. Oh, no. 13,781 gallons of whiskey were destroyed. She takes a sip. I, I want to warn oh. you, there's no tequila that got destroyed. So at least, there's, at least, there's that. Oh, at least there's a bright side. 1,754 gallons of wine. Oh, our second love. <laughs> <laughs> 6,587 bottles of homebrew. They also confiscated 165 automobiles, 10 trucks, 12 wagons, 9 horses, 7 mules, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> I was like, what are you going to do with those horses and that? Like, kill them? Like, what? The partridge of my joke, of course, but the rest yeah. is all true. Like, what are you doing with these horses and mules and shit? Are you going to just I'm, shoot them or like I'm what? Like, I, I keep in mind, this is early 1900s, so I, I found what I could. Oh, right. I would assume they would auction them off, but I do know that all of the bottles were broken and all of the liquor and There's a alcohol. Travesty. That was a travesty. Okay. Rest in peace. Like. I know we go towards tequila and that, but hell. Alcohol I, is alcohol. I enjoy a good beer every now and then. We en we enjoy our own things of wine. You're more yeah. of a white wine person. I'm more of a red wine. Like, yeah. yeah. It just hurts my soul. Same. Same. Raise a glass. <laughs> Raise a glass. <laughs> Everybody take a minute. A taps plays in the background. <laughs> <sighs> All right, so after the very devastating raids, oh, alcohol, the loss of all the alcohol, RIP, we all had a moment of silence, right? Ugh. U.S. commissioners spent all day working on warrants as the federal agents would leave and return with their suspects all day of long. Of course they're going to leave. By the end of the day, 17 mobilist mobile, mobile establishments were shut down for selling liquor. A month later, the cases were taken to the grand jury. This was such a big deal that the prosecutor's witnesses had to be guarded because of the threats that they, received, <laughs> that they were receiving. You're taking away my alcohol. Of course I'm going to threaten you. Amen, girl. <laughs> the grand jury indicted 71 people for violating the Volstead Act, which in common terms, it's the act that allowed federal agents and local agents to actually make arrests based on the 18th Amendment. Jeez. So, 71 people were arrested for indicted for violating the 18th Amendment, essentially. Ugh. 
These trials would last for more than three years. <laughs> Those arrested would include an Alabama state representative. Okay. A former sheriff that was a current state legislator. Oh. A, the Mobiles police chief. Also a funny side story. <laughs> Another one. There's a lot of little asterisks on oh, this episode. Gosh. After making bail, the police chief jumped a train to New Orleans where it's believed he was trying to catch a boat to South America and <laughs> run away. Oh, it gets better. Bye. <laughs> it gets better. But when the feds caught him and he was arrested, he told them that he just wanted to get a drink in New Orleans. And all I have to say to that is same. Same, sir. Same. Although that would be us. Other people are going down for it like the hand grenades and that we're like give me a good like margarita or something like that give me a good margarita take me to a uh, josie's for a for an irish coffee take me to the carousel bar for an experience i don't care i just want my last drink to be in new orleans before i go to jail for a long time yeah thank you thank you uh, the county sheriff was also arrested, the chief deputy sheriff, three deputies, the chairman of the Democratic Party, and a local attorney. Try and tell me it's the one time I would side with the police. Right. <laughs> there are certain police I do side with, but for the most part. <laughs> Decision, case-by-case uh, case basis. Yes. Um, so, the day after the federal indictments were handed down, Mobile District Attorney arrested the U.S. District Attorney, Mr. Aubrey Boyles, under the charge of trying to illegally influence those two state law enforcement agents. Oh! LOL. <laughs> Remember that from earlier? I told you it was going to bite him in the ass. Yep. It's clear that this is all a power play. Um, the, local news play the, no the local newspaper accused local officials of trying to null the activities of the feds, so basically undermining them, yep. which is exactly what was happening. But also because of this, Boyles did have to step down as the U.S. District Attorney. <laughs> so Karma! It, it did work. It's reported Boyles had to step down until he was cleared of all charges and Hugo Black stepped in to try these cases. No. The trials began April 3rd, 1924, with Robert T. Irvin as the federal judge. He was known locally for being lenient in prohibition cases, and he was also pretty close with most of the most <laughs> of the defendants. But it was reported that he was pretty fair in his judging, and he imposed discipline when it was needed. But to skip ahead a little bit, he also... Uh, recused himself from the second set of trials yes. that will happen after this so the first trial was on the lo local district attorney who prosecutors were hoping to get to flip on the rest of them by trying him first and he was actually acquitted of all try of all charges and it didn't work out for them so the next tactic that Black took on April 28, 1924, was to put all of the defendants on trial at once oh. <laughs> for conspiracy to violate the Federal Prohibition Act. There was insufficient evidence to prosecute them all, but this tactic did scare several of them into pleading guilty. Just because if one of them got sentenced guilty, they were all going to be sentenced guilty. Oh, my God. So, some of them pled to be like, if I plead now, I'll get a lesser uh, sentence sort of situation. 
Black accused future U.S. Congressman Frank Boykin of funneling money to law enforcement officers and federal agents to look the other way. <laughs> he was found Sir, guilty. nobody likes a snitch. He was found guilty of bribery, but the charges were later thrown out. At this point in the trial, two of the defendants got into a fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> where they were fined and they had to spend 10 days in jail. <laughs> Jordan Jackson, is that you? <laughs> and then at one point, when Harry French, the um, the undercover guy, yeah. was testifying, he called out one of the defendants for cussing him, and the defendant was charged two hundred fifty dollars for contempt in court. Oh my god! After the prosecution presented their case, Judge Irvin dismissed the charges against ten of the defendants. And supposedly, Boykin got rid of a piece of evidence by eating a telegram in the courtroom. Okay. Before the jury deliberated, the judge gave a two-and-a-half-hour lecture-slash-speech where he shared his opinions about the entire case. So he, like, really pissed off both sides of the courtroom and the jury and everybody. And in the speech, he was, like, sharing his opinions about the case he stated that there was sufficient evidence to convict several of them, but not all of them. And he also told them that he did not believe a single word that Harry French had to say either, which was the undercover guy. Yeah. The jury deliberated for two hours, then they went home for the night to sleep, and then they came back the next morning and reached their verdict. Eleven of the men were convicted, and 36 additional defendants were released. Among the convicted were the local mobile attorney from earlier that had already gotten off on the other charge and the mobile police chief that had run away to New Orleans. <laughs> My guy. Our guy. <laughs> other defendants either pled guilty or had their cases dismissed by the prosecutors. So circling back to Aubrey Boyles and his charges of attempting to illegally influence two state law enforcement officers. Uh-huh. Uh, they asked for that case to be transferred from Mobile to federal courts, and they finally approved that. Once it got put to federal courts, they kept uh, postponing it, and eventually they dismissed the case based on technical grounds, a.k.a. they didn't have enough evidence. Yeah. So by the time that Boyles was finally reinstated as the U.S. District Attorney on August 9th, 1924, a whole nine months had passed from his original indictments. After being reinstated, he went straight for Frank Boykin and William Holcomb again for conspiracy to bribe federal law enforcement officials. This time, Boyle had more confidence because of all of the previous defendants that had pled guilty or were prosecuted because they were on their way to federal prison. So yeah. he was kind of like, hey, I'll give you a lesser sentence if... You'll help me put these other guys away. At this point is when Judge Irvin accused himself of these trials because of the objections that were raised against him in the first set. <laughs> and federal Judge W.I. Grubb of Birmingham replaced Irvin in the second set of whiskey trials. Oh, my God. It's also important to remember at this point that Birmingham was more conservative yeah. than Mobile. So, Hugo Black... And Aubrey Boyles pair up again to prosecute the trials, this time beginning February 10th, 1925. There was evidence presented that liquor was stored in Charles Boykin, brother of Frank's warehouse. Frank was paid $1.50 per barrel for storing booze. 
Also, remember, this was 120 years ago. <laughs> so, did not do that in a little Google machine or anything, but that's a lot of money. Yeah. Frank had thousands of dollars in a bank to bribe law enforcement hidden away, too. And he also had proof that Frank had sent pay people to pay off federal agents, a.k.a. those people that were trying to plead for lesser sentences. <laughs> yeah. Someone even testified that Frank had raised money to bail out some of the bootleggers. The court found Boykin and Holcomb guilty of bribery. They were each sentenced to two years in prison and a $500 fine, and they were, released on, they were released on bond while their cases were being appealed. But in February 1926, those charges were all dropped. <laughs> After this, the state attorney brought impeachment charges against the current Mobile County Sheriff. He was acquitted in the large group trial the first time around, and the sheriff ended up resigning instead of facing the charges. Ugh. The federal judges also decided to dismiss all charges against uh, Harry French, the guy that had the murder charges against him. <laughs> and when Boyles was up for re-election that spring, members of Mobile not only tried to remove him, but they also tried to ruin his name and career. <laughs> with, take away my alcohol. With the help of a U.S. senator, multiple Mobile attorneys, Mobile judges, and other prominent members of society... They brought up questions of his bribery <laughs> that he did, quote unquote, undercover, but they keep bringing it up. <laughs> and also perjury during his real estate days. He was reelected, but ultimately Boyles lost his position when the vote went to the Senate and it was a 52 to 22 vote in the Senate that he was not confirmed. I wonder. <laughs> so this was the beginning of Boyles' demise. Boyles ended up staying in Alabama for a little bit, and he ran for Republican Congress seat, and he lost by a landslide. I wonder why. He continued practicing law in Mobile until 1933, until he moved to New York City, and he passed away in 1954. So, just a little side note to kind of tie this up. We talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but prohibition still exists around the country. Specifically, I can tell you in Alabama and parts of Mississippi, we have a lot of dry counties. Yeah. Most dry counties have at least one wet uh, city that you can buy alcohol and travel in that county and still be okay. But if you cross county lines or state lines you get, get stopped then it's a whole mess it gets problematic yeah so prohibition is still alive and well in the south we are still an uncultured society <laughs> in places not I'm, here in mobile we're I'm fine just, i'm just grateful that we live here yes one other thing that i wanted to talk about to wrap this up is where people would buy alcohol in prohibition because i found this pretty interesting so, you know, you see a lot of speakeasies on movies and TV shows, and it's usually you go into a back room or underground yes. or whatever. In Alabama, the hot spots were caves. <laughs> caves. Yeah, these caves. Caves were possible because they were easy to hide from the law. You were out in the wild, you would leave the city, go to a cave, and you could hide very easily in the darkness. Yeah. And if you were far enough back in the caves, the lights from whatever light you had wouldn't really alert anybody. So caves were very popular. One of the most popular caves was the DeSoto Caves because they were fairly close to Birmingham. 
They became known as the Bloody Bucket because of repeated shootings and stabbings. (laughs) I wonder. (laughs) If you go there today, you can even still see bullet holes in the cave walls. Yes. Another one is the Bangor Cave. Um, It was a popular tourist destination because it was close to the resort town of Blount Springs. This one kind of flew under the radar and didn't gain a lot of popularity until about 1937. And Prohibition ended in Alabama, quote-unquote, ended in about 1938. Uh, Nationally, it was 1933. Um, So they didn't really gain popularity until the end, but they were a spa speakeasy sort of situation because of where they were located next to the resort town. I was going to say, yeah. Um, there's also the Shelves Cave Club in Huntsville. It was a town nightclub fitted with a dance floor and a bandstand in a cave. Tourists would come from across the country to visit. There was even an underground lake that you could take boat rides in. Sounds neat to me. I would go to that one. The Bank Street Tunnels in Decatur is another one. And this is kind of more of a theory. It's not proven. But it's a theory because whenever the new owners took over, they found old bottles in the tunnels underneath their building. So they just kind of put two and two together and they say that it was a speakeasy, but it's not. Could also just been a place for people to hide out. It could have been, but also if it was a speakeasy, they never got caught and they did their job. So. True. Yeah. That is Prohibition. In America, in Alabama, and in Mobile. I mean... I never thought I'd be proud of the South. (laughs) Proud of Mobile, at least. Proud of Mobile for being so against it. I will say I do have a last call prepared that goes along with Prohibition. Let's hear it. (laughs) First little kind of fun fact I have. You mentioned Al Capone. Al Capone was a very famous like gangster or from like chicago and what people don't often know is that uh his oldest brother was actually a prohibition enforcement officer <laughs> i did not know that <laughs> so while capone do you think he paid his brother off well here's the thing while capone's doing all this in chicago the eldest brother is enforcing this like the laws in nebraska So, like, there's a few states in between, but, yeah. And from what I understand, like, I don't know how many siblings were in the Capone family, but, like, most of them changed their names so they weren't associated at all with Capone. But, yeah, I found it funny that, you know, one of his main things was he built this huge criminal empire based on, like, illegal liquor, but yet his brother is enforcing prohibition laws. Me and you dream of doing a booze cruise at some point, and we have the Prohibition era to thank for that. (laughs) Prohibition (laughs) is when the original booze cruise kind of started because many port cities would offer you, like, a boat ride to nowhere. Because as long as they were far enough off land, it wasn't considered illegal. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So, I really want to just go, you know, like the Caribbean or like Mediterranean for a booze cruise, but 
sure, if I can just stay on a boat and drink, fine, whatever. So you brought up like speakeasies. Apparently speakeasies were not what they were called. Um, they were called blind pigs. <laughs> I I think I knew that. And I also think they were called um, Eye of the Tiger. Maybe. But yeah, uh, a lot of them were called blind pigs because blind, a blind pig was a dive bar that had either a floor show or an animal on display and you'd pay an entry fee to view like the animals but your entry fee came with a free beverage okay so it was a way of kind of doing a loophole around right the sale of alcohol because you weren't actually paying for the alcohol right per se you brought it up and like when we first started it, it wasn't illegal to drink so like as long as you had alcohol that you purchased before like everything is technically legal so this benefited like wealthy families in that yeah they would just once they heard like rumors of this going on they would stockpile alcohol and they just drink at home right because you could and if you were wealthy you just weren't looked at as like a you bought this well that was like i didn't really talk about it in my case but Whenever they started prosecuting smaller crimes, it was always people of color or, yeah. you know, the lower people that couldn't really yes. afford to turn on the upper crimes. Um, <laughs> so even President Warren G. Harding moved his entire inventory of alcohol to the White House <laughs> so that he could drink during Prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> so even our president was like fuck this citizens of america you cannot drink let me take a shot for you right uh my last one was the fact that mississippi was the last state to make it legal to like drink again basically <laughs> out in public um, I crooked letter um like i said it was 1966 when they finally deemed it legal again so almost 33 years after the ban was lifted so that's three years before my mom was born in mississippi i mean my parents were already born at that point so it's weird like you grow up thinking like all this history is so long ago and then you get into it and you're like this really isn't that long ago it's like my grandparents lived during the great depression yeah my parents oh my grandmother my grandmother washed to-go boxes to to my the day we put her in a home she's she's in a home right now parents have stories of moving my grandma out of like their her house when my grandfather died to move her in with them yeah and going through their stuff and it was just the amount of stuff they had just because they lived during the great depression you saved everything yeah so it's just it's wild <laughs> to feel you, like we're so separated from it, but we're really not. Yeah. But that is my little prohibition facts to go with your uh, prohibition case. Happy New Year's, guys. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this. If you did, remember to subscribe, review, comment, like, um, all that fun stuff. We're on all socials. Yeah, you can find us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that. Tequila She Wrote across the board. We do have an email at tequila she wrote at gmail.com. 
send us requests. Yep. Cute pictures of animals. We're open for fun new stories. So, yeah. Um, Hope you enjoyed this case. We'll see you next time. See you next year. Yeah. (laughs) It is next year. Wow. Bye. (laughs) Bye.